And I'm Katie Amen, and this is the Drinking Like Ladies in Crisis podcast. This podcast is a companion project to our book, Drinking Like Ladies, in which we asked women bartenders from around the globe to take inspiration from amazing women in history and invent drinks based on their lives. Sometime, hopefully soon, each episode of our podcast will highlight amazing women doing equally amazing things. However, our industry family is hurting, and we feel as though we need to do what we can to help right now during this crisis. And what we can do is share information to our hospitality family about how to navigate in this critical time. Today we are joined by Bobby Hugel. As the owner of Anvil Bar and Refuge, The Pastry War, Oak Ridge Charity Saloon, The Nightingale, Penny Quarter, Tongue Cut Sparrow, and Better Luck Tomorrow, Bobby is a true anchor of the Houston hospitality community. It's so many restaurants. Um, in this episode, we'll chat about the current situation for independent restaurant owners and then the COVID-19 virus, the importance of industry-wide organization, and some possible lights at the end of the tunnel. Here's our conversation with Bobby Huber. Thank you for coming to join us today, Bobby. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, you're a dear friend of mine, but you're also extremely famous in the hospitality circles. And um, But there's probably some people here who maybe aren't as familiar with you as the rest of us. So can you give us a little bit about your background and your restaurants and what you do in Houston? Sure. Um, so over the last 11 years, I've opened 12 restaurants and bars in Houston. Um, they're extremely varied. Uh, so we, we started off with Anvil Bar and Refuge, which was our first cocktail bar, which literally just turned 11 last week. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And um, then we've also opened uh, restaurants, bars, cafes. Uh, we have a nonprofit bar where we donate 100% of our profits to charity. We've raised over $1.3 million at that bar. Um, and about a third of our places have been nominated for Beard Awards. Um, so in addition to that, uh, I've got around 100 employees currently. Um, I've visited 400 distilleries globally, which was a lot of fun. Um, and relevant to today's discussion, I have a master's in intercultural communication with a focus on conflict resolution. So um, somehow, this week especially, uh, my martini preferences have merged with my background um, and allowed a lot of those uh, old skills to come forward. So, <laughs> so I guess we could say you're an overachiever. Um. <laughs> Just can't a sleep opponent. Sleep opponent is what I like. <laughs> what do you see as your biggest challenges right now as an owner and an operator of all of these spots? Well, I think for everybody who's answering this question now, and this goes for all of my friends that are owners and everybody that I've spoken to, the number one challenge currently is how do we take care of our staff? I think there's a lot of fears, obviously, about our businesses and everything we've worked for over the years and our own personal savings. And I think it's okay to be afraid about all of those things. But I think that everyone's number one concern currently is how do we take care of our staff members that are less privileged than ourselves? Um, and I think 
that's a really tough thing to confront currently because we don't have the traditional resources that we use to take care of those staff members. Um, so for me, for example, just to peer into my world, uh, we have a biweekly payroll that's around $200,000 between our associated restaurants and bars. And currently I operate seven specifically and I don't make that much money. <laughs> like I think a lot of people think that restaurant and bar owners are just like raking it in all the time. And I don't make that much money. I, I make slightly more than what a president of operations for a restaurant group my size would make. I'd like to think that we've been generally successful in Houston and successful with our concepts. And there is no way on the planet that I can cover payroll personally. It's just, it's not an option. The biggest challenge is how do we take care of our staff knowing that it's, it is beyond our financial means to do so. And, you know, you were speaking about your own kind of personal fear in regards to this, and it must be really challenging to manage the fear of your employees as well. And, you know, how, how have you been doing that in this moment? I think it's hard to, um, to, to do a podcast like this, for example, and talk about all of the things that are very scary about our industry and then turn around and tell my staff it's going to be okay. By the way, it's going to be okay, y'all. I got it. Like, it's, in case you're listening, it's going to be fine. Um, and so I think that's really challenging. But I think those of us who, who have the luxury of feeling like it's going to be okay have a responsibility to speak out for our industry as a whole because there are people out there that may not be able to tell their staff members that. And so I think that that aim aligns with my aim, which is how do we generate enough resources for our industry right now? Um, even just like navigating the red tape that's surrounding like what SBA loans look like, right? If the Senate and House can get it together and actually pass an aid package, right? How does that look from a grant level? How does that relate from an actual loan level? All of these different issues are kind of up in the air right now. So if we're talking about these things, that creates more certainty among our industry. It creates more clarity. And those of us who are in this boat together can kind of figure this out. And then that's how we take care of our staff members. So maybe we're in a position where we have to pause a little bit before we have all of those answers. But as long as we're being transparent with our staffs about where that's at and what we're waiting on, and that we think that there is hope in the future, it, it's going to change a lot over the next couple of weeks. And I think we'll get there, even though right now everything is very uncertain. You know, I, you, you talked about the federal aid package, um, and you've been organizing locally in in Texas and in, in, in Houston specifically for a long time. Um, how, how do we interact on our local and national levels to perhaps influence what's going to happen for our industry in this moment? So I think one thing that everybody needs to realize is that currently the federal government is in, in a lot of ways is setting this up to be a state's issue because they don't want to be responsible for all of the choices. And then additionally, in some ways that makes sense as well, because some states are going to suffer more than others. A really good example of this is that New York right now is, is currently the epicenter of problems in the United States, and the problems that they're facing are dramatically different than what we're facing in Houston. So there should be two types of response for that because it helps to allocate health resources and whatnot in different ways. But that means that if you're not really active at a state level, you're not engaging the functional aspect of how this response is occurring. And that applies to how hospitality workers are treated, what type of benefits people are going to get, and then the laws that are regulating how your restaurants and bars are going to operate in the future. And it's not hard to engage this issue at all. There's even um, apps and uh, you know tools like ResistBot, which I've been using a lot lately, where you literally can, can mail a paper letter to your senator, to your U.S. representative, and all you have to do is text this phone number, and then they 
ask you some questions. You can text in what your what your letter's content should be, and you're done in 10 minutes. And that's the link that's in my Instagram profile right now. You can go through that, and you can use the form letter that I've written. This is Misty jumping in real quick. You can follow Bobby on Instagram at Bobby underscore Hugel. That's at B-O-B-B-Y underscore H-E-U-G-E-L. We will put his information up on our website also, which is drinkinglikeladies.com, as well as the links to the important organizations he mentions today. Okay, back to our conversation. So, but it is important when we're talking about this to recognize the tiers of government in this process and recognize just how important these different levels of government are going to be specifically to who we are as operators and who we are as hospitality workers. So it's really, really important to, to send those letters to U.S. senators and representatives, especially when aid is being dealed out right now, because that's our biggest opportunity as an industry to get financial relief. But aside from the financial relief, the more regulatory aspects of what's happening here are going to be determined at a state level or even a local level. So before I got on this podcast with you, we just went down to essential businesses only in Harris County. Um, And Harris County is basically the county side of the entire city of Houston. Harris County is entirely occupied by the city of Houston. So even in our small, you know, area, even though Houston is gigantic, but even in our small area, we've got two different government branches that are making decisions about what constitutes an essential business and what doesn't. And then at the same time, we're lobbying the state governor to say that restaurants should be essential businesses so that we can stay open and do to-goes. And obviously there's health concerns with that. So what should be the health regulations that determine which restaurants should be capable of doing this and which, which shouldn't? These are all state level concerns. And I think that in today's political climate, we are so used to talking about federal issues and we're so used to bitching about Trump and things like that, right? That we forget just how much states have a role specifically in small businesses' lives, and that's a really huge issue for us right now. Thank you for um, explaining it that way, too. I think that's a really tangible way to understand um, the differences um, and the levels of the policymakers. Um, it's helpful yeah, to it, it's important, too. They're so much more accessible as well. I know that um, last week in seven hours, our industry sent over 25,000 emails to the governor, right? Like, we filled the voicemail box they had to rebuild the website and change um, how emails were, were coming in, and they kind of begged us to stop too. Um, and that has a lot of a lot to do with people, you know, um, caring a lot and, and calling. But it also has a lot to do with the Texas Restaurant Association and our work with them specifically, so that we could be a megaphone for the lobbying work that they're doing. So that cooperation was really important. And that's really cool. It's like watching as our industry is kind of coming together and maybe some organizations that previously have not been working together are recognizing like this shared concern and the possibility of amplification of voices and um, coordination. And I think that's going to be really key as we move forward. Um, If we want to see this industry, you know, the restaurant industry is the second largest private employee in in the U.S., you know, Mm -hmm. and so... Like, how, how do we get our voices heard? And I think that that really coming together and organizing together is going to be really key as we move forward. Yeah. As we're thinking of organizing, too, think of two, like, formal ways in which organization is going to get structured. We've got nonprofits, which are obviously really important when there's people in need, right? Those are 501c3s. And then we've got political action committees, which are 501c4s, right? They're allowed to have a political voice that engages politics formally. Our industry needs to organize themselves in both ways, and we need both groups. And it's important that everybody think about how we need to have voices in both sides of this engagement. 
And then also, if you are organizing something new, you need to think about which direction you're going to take it because getting an organization structured from the beginning is one of the best ways to make it successful. So if that's happening or you're interested in doing something like that, make sure that you keep that in mind. That's amazing advice. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting because we were an in industry like so many others that where we run the gamut from these really large chain operations down to like the corner local that's run by, you know, a couple. Um, and it, is it, is it going to be possible or viable for us to create an industry that um, can be successful for both sides of this equation? I think that a lot of my very cynical bartender friends would say that it's not possible and that large companies don't have our best interests at heart and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just don't think that that's true. And I actually think that we need an industry that has different tiers and different levels of emphasis. Um, and so I think a good example of this is like gun lobbyists, right? We've got all kinds of gun lobbyists out there. We've got the, obviously the fam, the famous National Rifle Association, which oddly enough shares the same acronym with the National Restaurant Association. Then around the National Rifle Association, we have all of these different odd gun lobbyists. We've got like the crazy guys in Montana, you know, we've got these second amendment folks. We've got like whatever the, the backstop things are. We've got people that love silencers. Like we have all these different people that are lobbying the federal government from all of these different angles, but the, the collective strength of their voice and the reason why gun lobbyists have been so successful in the United States is because of their diversity in their lobbying efforts. We don't have that currently. We're, we're missing this function as an industry. We have the National Restaurant Association, which is actually doing, I think, a wonderful job in representing the needs of our industry. And they've done a pretty good job of representing the needs of workers as well, because they're recognizing that workers are critical to our industry. But beyond that, we don't really have any other major lobbying groups in the United States that are emphasizing what restaurants or more specifically what bars need. We need a variety of organizations that are expressing these things from different viewpoints. We need labor unions to be really active on a federal level for this, right? Even if they're not active in all states, we need specific hospitality worker lobbyist groups that are talking specifically about the needs of hospitality workers. We need all of these different aspects and we need them to come from levels that are big, large chain levels. And then we also need, you know, some that are specifically talking about the challenges that mom and pops have. If we don't have this and we don't have this diversity, then we will just pale in comparison to what other industries and lobbying efforts in the United States have. And we will fail to get the proper amount of aid that we need allocated. And a, a good example of this is that when we talk about workers currently that are um, being affected by this crisis, it's like 90% of the workers are in the hospitality industry currently. Now, I think that's going to change. And obviously, more industries are going to be affected on the long run. But if we view that currently, the, the type of aid packages and allocations that are being determined aren't even proportional to that workforce need. It's not even close. Um, and, and the reason why that's the case is because other industries have stronger lobbying efforts than what we do. And so everybody needs to realize what we're capable of, but also realize that it needs to have a structural, intentional and varied voice. And so there needs to be a lot of respect for the industry as a whole during times like this. What and how has the response been within your community and, and beyond? Well, I think it's been great because one thing that we've realized that we're capable of is being politically active very, very soon. And that's actually how our charity bar got started was that that bar was created because we fought all of these really dire proposals that were coming out of the city of Houston that would regulate 
uh, restaurants and bars. And we were super successful in, in fighting all of those. And then when we were done and we like clearly won this battle, we were like, what do we do now? And so we started the charity bar. So some of those lessons from before activated again for this. And one of the most important things that we realized um, was that we have all of the tools that we need to be successful politically. We just use them to sell food and drinks every day, right? But we yeah. can use them in totally different ways. Our, our ability to access engaged and enthusiastic consumers is something that the airline industry doesn't have. Like nobody's cheering for these industries other than we'd like to still be able to fly. People are enthusiastic about the specifics of our industry and they're aware of them. They see the people that are working in those places every day. They have relationships with bartenders and servers, right? And we have this infrastructure, whether it's social media, our ability to connect with guests. We have all of these things that other lobbying groups would love to have. They would love to have this level of engagement and they don't. So we, even though we lack the structure that I was talking about before, we have all of these things currently available to us. But what people also need to remember with things like this is that it's not a measure of your success on one issue. It is actually a measure of how much attention you're starting to accumulate politically, right? And then that, that translates to political capital. And then how that political capital continues to shape decisions in the future isn't always a black and white choice. It's instead like, how present are we in the minds of decision makers? And everybody needs to realize that. And I think that people forget that sometimes because we're so caught up in talking about the haves and have nots. And while those issues are really important, it is also important to just recognize how the American political system works and realize that presence is the most important thing that you can ask for initially. And then after you build that presence, you can get more specific with your demands. So we're in the presence creating movement for our industry. And we just need to generally be kept in mind. And then as we acquire that capital over the next month, then that can transition to more specific requests from state and federal governments. Um, but right now, presence is the most important thing, even if we're not always 100% successful on our requests. You know, just having been in this industry for so long, I think a lot of people feel so helpless. Um, but to have you kind of put a finer point on it and be like, you have these skills, you just need to use them in a different way is so empowering. Yeah, it's 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 exciting. And I, I think um, our industry will respond to that if if we're if we remain optimistic about it. And um, that's really important is that people do feel empowered and they feel um, that they that they do have outlets for change because they do and they have the outlets that other people wish they have. We just haven't used them traditionally that way. Um, so as for regionality, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier. I actually thought that your mentioning of the um, gun lobby was interesting and wondered if that was a very just something that someone in Texas might think of more top of mind than in Massachusetts. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. I think it's great. Um, do you think we have to navigate this all differently um, from the comparatively conservative state of Texas versus from a, a bar owner who might be living in a state like New York or California, for example? Um, like how is regionality affecting our responses? I, I um, think that this is a hard issue for me to uh, to speak on sometimes as a white male bar owner, um, because there are very critical things that we need to address in our industry and we need to address them universally. But at the same time, I get frustrated when my friends who happen to live in super liberal um, parts of the country pretend that that's functionally how things work for us in other parts of the country. So for example, I do have to negotiate really conservative state laws in Texas and our ability to respond proactively on what we would consider to be more liberal issues is more restricted in this state than it is in other states. And I sometimes think that my peers in the industry forget that there are challenges in different states that they don't necessarily have to face 
in their more liberal states. I do not think that that changes the need or what we need to provide for people like undocumented workers who work in our industry, for example, right? But maybe it means that we have to keep in mind that the goals that are tangible currently in Texas are very different than what they are in California. And then on the flip side of that, owners need to recognize that if you're working in a state like that, right, that the responsibility that you have to care for people that are not cared for by the government is greater. But I, I don't think that we take the time in this industry to always have this conversation. And I think instead we speak about what should happen as though there's a, a magic wand that's going to get waved across all 50 states and all different regions and change people's cultural attitudes and change all the laws and whatnot at once. And again, that's just not how things work. Um, so as this movement moves forward, I think, again, emphasizing state activity is important. And I also think that emphasizing that we all face the challenges as operators differently regionally is important as well so that we can continue to be allies for each other's efforts, right? Um, and keep in mind the different avenues through which that has to proceed. What do you see as the vulnerabilities in our industry that have been exposed because of this pandemic? Um, well, I think that clearly the, the largest vulnerability is with the people that work in this industry because our workforce is how our businesses operate, right? Um, if, if our workforce is incapable of being cared for, right, then our, our restaurants and bars are meaningless on the backside of that crisis in a lot of ways, or they have to restart to the point where it may not be functional. And then more specifically that we talk about communities in that workforce that are even more affected by others. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, Ashton Berry and uh, Robin Nance's comments about what we need to be doing right now on their America's Table initiative are extremely strong, but I really appreciate too, they're noting that the problems that we're facing right now are symptoms that are exaggerated by this crisis, but they're not new symptoms that we're, we're talking about structures and things that are in place in our industry that are problems for communities before we had to deal with this epidemic, right? And they're going to continue to be problems unless we address them. So I, I think that we need to think about the vulnerabilities of workers during a crisis. But I think that their point about thinking about how some communities are more vulnerable than others, even before we got to this point, is something that we need to focus on so that we can create more equality in how we share the challenges that we'll almost certainly face again. I wish that you could turn around now and tell us what the answer is. Like, <laughs> like future Bobby? Because, I mean, I, you know, you're you're... You're very right. You know, these these were systemic problems and there's just a, you know, the light is being shine is shining on us right now, right? And where where do we go from here? You know, once once we've gotten to the point, you know, whenever it comes that we're up and running again, what are the next steps to make sure that we we are continuing to think about that? I think one important thing to note here is that it's pretty easy for me to get on this podcast and talk about like what a 501c3 and 501c4 are and talk about like different laws and talk about all these like financial elements of operating a restaurant and bar because it's I, I get to speak about that from a position of privilege because I have access to to those decisions every single day. So I think that the most important thing that we need to do beyond that is listen to people that can can share their specific experiences and tell us what they need. It's hard for me to express that as as a white guy that owns seven restaurants and bars, right? That's that's very difficult for me to do. It's easier for someone else or for um, someone that that maybe has a specific background on those issues um, to be able to express those issues in, in a clearer manner. And 
that's just not something that I'm the best person to speak on. And I think so yielding more of that territory to those individuals is very important. Um, but I, I don't think that any of us are going to look back on the structures that we have in terms of, of how we've created our restaurants and bars and think that going forward that we've been doing everything right. And I think that admitting that and thinking about how when we are making these organizational choices with our businesses, we can give ourselves more opportunities to be responsive in the event that something like this happens again is really important. Um, to follow up on that uh, before we move on, um, that's something that I know in Massachusetts, at least, is very affected by which LLC can own a liquor license. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering about your thoughts about um, about how the liquor laws that are different in every state, three-tier distribution, distribution system, Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that these are going to survive this crisis? I guess maybe not just the liquor laws in general, but like how we're like enabled to move and be businesses in this country because we work with alcohol. Um, those are laws that were created post prohibition, right? So they're old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the coolest things about the coronavirus. There are a few. <laughs> and like one of the things that's really exciting about what's happening right now is that we're all getting to run pilot programs on the way that we wish liquor laws were actually structured in this country. Um, and that's pretty cool. It's it's exciting to think that maybe in the next couple of days, you might be able to order a margarita for delivery in Texas. That would be the first time that that's, that's happened since uh, prior to prohibition. And those things are happening because they're seen as um, economic relief or compromises to help keep restaurants and bars afloat, even though there's no way on the planet that they're going to function in that manner. Right. And um, for our governments to represent that this is the way that we're going to stay alive is crazy. But on the bright side, right, we are able to challenge some of these laws currently and say, look, you know, we served a bunch of margaritas to go and nothing bad happened. All of the threats about why we, we can't do this are just unfounded and everything's okay. And so if we don't realize that that's an opportunity for our industry right now to be proactive on some of these issues and to break down some of these structures, then we're really missing a big opportunity because we're doing these things anyways. We're making to-go cocktails. We're, we're hopefully reaching out to our, our state lobbying groups and federal lobbying groups and our representatives and senators. And we're, we're doing all of these things. So just as we transition out of this, all we have to do is, is remember to say, hey, that worked. Can we maintain these going forward? Um, specifically, I think a lot of large liquor companies are handicapped right now by these restrictions and, and have said that they would like to be more capable in helping hospitality workers, but the restrictions that are in place because of a three-tier system, for example, are keeping them from doing so. Is, is that what our country wants currently? I think it's fair to ask that question. There's, there's a, an interdependency between hospitality workers, bar owners, uh, distributors, and, and liquor companies currently that doesn't allow us to fully help one another through this crisis. It's, a, it's time to challenge those laws right now in the spirit of relief, but maybe consider if that's something that should be dismantled going forward. Can you imagine another situation where we would have had that opportunity in recent years? That's, that's amazing, you know, and it's, we, we would all dream that that's the way it was. And now all of a sudden, maybe some of it's possible because of the situation that we're in, but without this moment, that would never even be allowed to be brought to the table. And so that's kind of cool. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, you brought up the brands and there's so many brands that want to help, but are, are high, you know, their hands are tied in the ways that they can do that. And, you know, do you have advice as an owner as, you know, for brands or companies right now that want to provide relief or come to for in some sort of help in some way? 
Well, um, yeah, I do think that there are a lot of opportunities for brands uh, to work currently. And, um, you know, I, I know that this has been a controversial topic with me in different ways. So I just want to stay positive on it today and kind of point out what some of those things are. Because if companies are having trouble finding ways to financially engage this issue, I do think that there's a lot of options out there on the table. Um, and, and they have a, you know, as companies need to evaluate these things, they have a good ROI, they have a good return on investment, especially now. And so even though we're in a crisis moment, that ROI factor isn't going away for companies. I just think that they need to see what the value is a little bit more. So some of the examples of things that I think could could occur here, obviously, demonstrating the interdependency between brands and workers and breaking down those laws. But further beyond that, um, does anybody know what the guidelines are for operating restaurants and bars according to the CDC currently? Some people do, right? But it's it's pretty hard to dig it up, honestly. And like, even if you go to like specific organizations, websites and stuff like that, it's not the easiest thing to find. Now, certainly, I think that responsible bar owners and restaurant owners have gone through the effort of finding this information and then are making sure that they're being compliant. But what percentage of restaurants and bars is that? I don't really want to guess, but I, I think that um, there's. it's safe to say that there's a lot of restaurants and bars out there that maybe aren't like your fancy cocktail establishments with precise standards that are just trying to find their way through all of this. And then distributing that information to them might make a big change and it might save some lives. And brands have access to those people where other companies don't. Um, what are we doing about distributing information on physical and mental health, right? Specifically mental health in an industry that struggles with alcohol abuse, right? We're asking large populations throughout this country to self-isolate at a time when they don't have access to maybe their support groups or different structures that they've used previously to maintain their sobriety. I'm not an expert on sobriety. And I think a lot of people who are uh, pursuing a life of sobriety have a lot of problems thinking about how other people talk about this issue. So I think that you need to be be careful about how that occurs, but talking to those people and getting their advice and then sharing that with other people is really important because bar teams oftentimes are your family, especially if you're a bartender moving through a sober period. And so giving advice to other people who may not be going through that about how they can be supportive would be really helpful. Again, this is something that liquor brands specifically could do. Um, and then certainly we need directed financial support and we need that directed financial support to go to organizations like the USBG that hopefully will distribute that in, in the right manner. But those options are still out there on the table and they need to be consistent with what brands have said previously about how valuable bartenders are. And that's not to criticize anybody for their donations at this point, but I do think that there's been a lot of, of rhetoric in the past about how much bartenders matter and never has that rhetoric had more value than it does right now. So sending that message and then backing it up is is extremely important. And so I think that if we just think about the context of ROI right now at a time that the bartender community is desperate, it, it becomes less about how do we save as much money or how are we limited in our response to this issue? Because certainly liquor companies are scared about their financial future right now, but also like the ROI disproportionately is so much larger than what it's been for the past decade. And if you think about how much money has been spent and how many different initiatives have occurred in liquor companies, it's, it's such an amazing opportunity. And if, if we think about it that way, I think that there's, there's a lot of cohesion that can come about and a lot of goodwill that then, you know, pragmatically turns into specific sales going forward for the brands that are willing to engage in that manner. Um, so one of our colleagues here in Boston, Lauren Friel, 
Um, she owns the Somerville wine bar called Rebel Rebel, and she made this point recently on her Instagram. The hospitality industry is social security for a significant portion of the population. Uh, to quote her post, the fact is the restaurant industry is the country's de facto social security. We provide jobs and income for those without, without degrees, without steady income, without legal status, without permanent homes, without child support, without, without, without. Uh, well, I have never met Lauren, but I follow her on Instagram and I, I went back to look at this post after you sent me this question. And um, I really, at first I was like, oh, that's scary because everybody talks about how social security is going bankrupt all the time, which is exactly how <laughs> I feel about our industry right now. So my, my initial answer was, that makes me feel awful. Um, but then I, I slid across the post a little more and read a little bit about what she was saying. And um, it was interesting to note that she said that she returned to this industry as a, as a marginalized member of our society and then eventually chose it. Um, and so I think that context for her comments changes a whole lot. Um, and I think that it's important to, to realize that um, we have to adjust our industry in some ways if this is the function that our industry is serving from an employee perspective or from, from an employer's perspective. And we need to realize that a lot of the people that are working for us may have not chosen to work for us because they think that we're really nice people and they really like the bar that we've opened. Um, instead, I think a lot of people have, have not chosen to work for us, but have entered into a position in life where they have to work for us. And um, I thought that was really powerful in what she was saying. And then she went on to, on to talk a little bit more about how there are good restaurant owners and there are bad owners out there um, in some ways. But I think for me, it, it, it just shifted a little bit in terms of how I was thinking about people working for us. And then I started to think about maybe individuals that are working for us that haven't chosen to do so by choice. And we spend so much time emphasizing um, bartenders and, um, you know, what they're going to do next and what their next opportunities are and building their careers and, and whatnot. But maybe someone else doesn't have that opportunity because there's a language barrier, or maybe somebody else doesn't have that opportunity because there's um, depression and, and different mental, mental health issues that keep them from achieving everything that maybe other people can. And so I think uh, it's important when we rebuild this industry and when we're coming out of this crisis that we consider why people are working for us and make sure that what our industry is providing for them is not necessarily just a paycheck. So I, I think her comments struck home with me because in a lot of ways they were directed towards owners. Um, and, I, and I don't think that any of us is by any means perfect. And I think that if we're thinking about what people are relying upon us for um, and thinking about what we need to recreate in the future, it needs to be a lot better and it needs to be more thoughtful. So I liked her comments a lot. I, and your answer kind of tags on to my next thought, which is, you know, we've talked about a lot of really challenging things, some of the things that we have direction to a certain degree of what we should be doing and a lot of things we definitely don't have the answers to and going back to the very beginning where you're talking about fear your own fear probably the fear that, that your employees have as well so if there's positives that could come out from this what do you think they are could be um i think that uh misty you you probably know this better than me but we've we've both been through this period where we watched the cocktail movement specifically change a lot over the years. And at first it was people that like really, really loved cocktails and then also kind of bartended and we were all kind of weird. And we worked in these different bars, like, you know, Anvil and drink and places like that. And then like it started to gain some momentum. And then we have now ended up in this place where cocktails and um, 
you know, working as a chef and in different aspects of this industry were really popular fads. I, I think that died last week. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody's like, yay, that's the, the, the job that I, I, I really uh, am going to casually enjoy because it's going to move me forward in the future. So I think that we're going to come out of this with a workforce that is full of people that really love this industry and want to continue working in it. So I'm excited about that um, in a lot of different ways. And I also think um, that that enthusiasm for the industry is so powerful. I mean, we've we've seen this happen in our industry in a variety of ways, but in smaller contexts, whether that was a hurricane hitting Houston and people supporting us around the country by serving Hurricane Harvey wallbangers for charity. Um, like just, we raised $500,000 just reaching out to friends for Hurricane Harvey release in Houston during that period. It's just there's always such a strong response about what should be in the future in this industry. And despite all of our cynicism about politics and our cynicism that maybe sometimes is acquired from dealing with grumpy guests every night, I do think that the industry is overwhelmingly positive about our future. And so I think that when we're rebuilding these things and we're considering the haves and have nots in our industry and we're trying to create structures for how we can avoid this in the future and we're trying to have a better political voice and we're trying to you know, get to a point where our relationship with liquor companies is is even more productive than what it's been in the past. All of those things aren't going to go away simply because we develop a vaccine for the coronavirus one day. That's that's not what's going to happen. So I think that we'll end up with an industry that values workers so much more and creates healthy businesses as a result of that. Um, and if we don't, it will be a massive failure on all of our parts. So I, I think that it's hard to see just how... Um, positive things might become out of this, but, but that's tends to be how industries improve as a whole is by facing really, really dire challenges, whether it's like meatpacking issues in the early 1900s or, you know, broader social welfare coming out of the great depression or, you know, all of those different issues. Our industry isn't, isn't indifferent to those things. And it's not going to be um, exceptional in terms of how we will improve coming out of this. So I, if everybody can just hold tight, you know, keep it together, find a way to get through together in this, I think that we'll end up in a much, much better place and that we'll maybe not be happy that we went through this, but I think that we'll be happier with the places in the industry that we work in. Bobby, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, you are so amazing and, and you're somebody that so many people in this industry look to for guidance and we really appreciate your generosity um, because I know that all of this knowledge comes through a lot of hard work and research on your part so thank you for making it easier for us to do the right things. Well thanks for having me I really appreciated the chance to share some of that um, and uh, you know it's it's just nice that we've had the ability to, to spend time on those things here in, in Houston and in Texas and we recognize that that's a that's a privilege that comes with a responsibility to share. All right. So we end our podcast with what is called the last call lightning round. So we have a series of five questions that we ask every single one of our guests. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Last call. You are in a bar. You don't want to look at the menu. What's your go-to drink? A martini. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I just like martinis of all sorts are fine with me. And that's what I want. Awesome. Um, if you could have a drink with anyone living or dead, who would it be? My full legal name is Robert Lincoln Hugel. 
because Abraham Lincoln is my ancestor. So I would love to have a beer with Abraham Lincoln. Just a beer? <laughs> well, it says, you said a drink. I mean, I'll get smashed with, with a if you want. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, your desert island drink. Just one thing for the rest of your life. What is it? If you have a pina colada on your menu, I will always order it, but especially on a desert island. Okay, this one is very polarizing, perhaps more than any other question we've asked you today. So are you ready? I feel like my friendship with you is hanging on this question. (laughs) Espresso martini, Baileys or no Baileys? I I was taught that it has Baileys in it, and that's how I will always make it. Okay. If if Baileys is available. (laughs) And finally, your last call song. So uh, when we did the pop-up at Lost Lake a few years ago, our last call song every single night was David Allen Coe's You Never Even Called Me By My Name. You never even called me by my name. And since then, our bars all the time play this as a last call whenever they feel like it. It doesn't happen every night, but those of us who were involved in that pop-up have kind of adopted that as a last call for our company as a whole. So... I absolutely love that. Love it. A huge thank you to Bobby Hubel for joining us and dropping some knowledge. As always, he was so generous with the information he's worked so hard to accumulate over the years. Kitty, what was the thing that really stood out to you in the conversation? Well, I just think he's so amazing. I know you know him super well, Misty, but I really don't. I know him more through Facebook and as like a um, a personality in the hospitality industry. But he's so articulate and just made um, being political seem actually accessible, which is something that um, doesn't really always feel that way to me. And I'm sure a lot of people in our industry feel the same way. So I really appreciated that. Um, And I also enjoyed how optimistic he was um, and how he is looking at this whole situation from kind of like this macro level um, and can see the potential that a horrible, horrible crisis has for breaking a broken system open, um, exposing, you know, the light is the, what is it, the cracks are where the light gets in, right? Exposing those um, inequities and then forcing change, which is what we desperately need um, and feels like a very real possibility when you talk to him. I appreciated that so much. He's a pretty amazing person. And I think we're all so fortunate to have him in the industry and as a, a leader that's willing to interact with anybody who who is looking to improve their situation, whether it's um, you know at a time where things are going good and they want to excel even more or in times like this where we really need true leaders. Well, as always, a huge thank you to our amazing producer who makes us sound good, Mr. Chris Voss. In addition to hearing his work here on our podcast, you can visit him weeknights on Facebook Live at his side hustle, the Aurora Bedtime Story Project. Gather the kids, curl up with your favorite blanket, and hear a classic story. Head over to our website, drinkinglikeladies.com, to learn more about the topics covered today and to find links to the organizations that are doing everything they can to support the restaurant and hospitality industries right now. You can also find and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at Drinking Like Ladies and on Twitter at Drink Like Ladies. Please subscribe for updates on new episodes. Until next time. I'm Misty. And I'm Kitty. And this is Drinking Like Ladies, a Spirit of Rock podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.